0: This morning's uh, scripture is taken from Romans uh, chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those He predestined, He also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. We're in this series on Romans chapter 8. If you have a Bible, you might open it up to chapter 8 of the book of Romans. We chose as an image for this sermon series the Roman Colosseum, as you can see from the picture there. We chose that image for a couple of reasons. Number one, it says Rome. The book of Romans, you think, when you see the Colosseum, you think Rome, and so it it attaches our thoughts and our minds to that area of the world, to Rome. And we know that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, we call Romans, to those early Christians in the first century who lived in that area. Of course, it wasn't just intended for them by the Holy Spirit and his inspiration. It is extended to all of us as believers no matter where we are, no matter who we are. But it says Rome, and then the second reason is because it, in many ways, is the symbol of persecution, isn't it? It is the symbol of uh, pain and all the things that, that happened there. And there's a really good chance that Christians were tortured there, that they met their fate, death there, that they were martyred there in front of onlookers who were cheering their demise and their death. Certainly, there was a time in history when Christians were put to death because of their faith. So when we see this Colosseum, we think about some of the things Christians throughout the ages have gone through because they lived as men and women of faith. That Colosseum is quite impressive. Some of you have gotten to visit there and, and have seen that. I was there 10 years ago, and I remember just... The marvel that it is architecturally, and just how big it is. And I remember standing inside the Colosseum and thinking how far removed my world was from that time and that place, and the purpose that that took place there. I felt so far removed there, and I was just sort of taking it all in, and then I saw something strangely familiar as I looked across the way inside the Coliseum, and I had to take a closer look, and in one of these little openings, there was a little group of people holding an Oklahoma City Thunder flag. (laughs) I think we have a picture of it, if you can put that up there. One more. There it is, and you can zoom in with the next slide there it is how odd, how strange I was so surprised I don't know if you know they were going to the game and their Uber driver took a wrong turn I don't know they said arena, he heard coliseum I don't know how they ended up there but they're holding this thunder flag I mean there wasn't a flag of any country uh, you know of any other team or organization but for some reason on that day while we were there there was an Oklahoma City thunder flag there very odd, very strange, very unexpected. Well, recently they've discovered something else unexpected, something that they didn't expect to see at the Colosseum. On one of the arches leading into the arena, an arch that certainly gladiators walked under and maybe even Christians as they walked under that arch onto that hallowed ground and met their faith fate out there in front of onlookers, they discovered a painting, a large painting of the city of Jerusalem, back in Jesus' day. In fact, as a part of this painting, in one sort of corner of the painting, there are three crosses there. And as people have looked at that and studied it, they said, you know, that's just one more indication of something they already knew, and that was that the Colosseum was later used as a place of worship. It became a place of faith for Believers. Isn't that interesting? This grand coliseum, this place that is and was the symbol of torture, of amusement, of self-gratification and self-glory, later became this house of God, this honorable place. But see, that's how redemption works. That is the picture of redemption, where something that was dishonorable becomes Honorable. Something that was used for a purpose that is anti-God, against God, somehow is transformed into a purpose or a place that honors God. Redemption is when God brings good from the bad. Romans chapter 8, especially our text today, is a story of redemption. God bringing good out of bad. It's such an important story that we need to hear, a story that we participate in every day. How is God redeeming our world? How is he redeeming our pain and our suffering? You know, when something happens to us, or even when something happens around us or in the world, we try to make sense of it, don't we? We, we give it a reason. We, we look for the motivation, the, the reason it happened or is happening to us. For example, when you're driving down the road and someone cuts you off in traffic and they speed off, you suddenly have some kind of reaction to that. And as a part of that reaction, you're probably in your mind telling yourself why that person did that. Now, my wife has this little game she plays when that happens where she makes up a scenario to almost justify their actions and make me feel much better about their recklessness. She will say something like, I'm sure he had to work late, he's trying to rush home to see his, beds, to see his kids before they go to bed at night. Or, or maybe she just found out her mom is really sick and so she's rushing to the hospital to see her mom. My explanations are much more succinct and less gracious. Something like, what a jerk. <laughs> That's my explanation. You know, there's a whole line of research in social sciences about explanations. It's called attribution theory. It's what we ascribe to things that happen. We want to make sense, and so we come up with reasons why things happen to us and around us and to people we love and in the world. And everyone, the research suggests, has an explanatory style, the way we come up with these explanations internal versus external. It's my fault, I'm to blame, or it's someone else's fault. It was controllable or uncontrollable. It's random or specific. All of these things come into the way we make decisions about why certain things happen. So if you take that line of thinking, coming up with an explanation, attributing something to things that are unfolding in our lives if you take that line of thinking and you apply it to the age-old question that has haunted us for so long and that question is why do bad things happen to good people where do you end up where do you land because all of us try to do it We suffer, we go through difficult times, we see injustice in the world, we see oppression, we see hatred, we see violence, and we try to make sense of it, so we come up with explanations. This is why it's happening. Or maybe this helps explain why I'm going through this. The nature of the question itself reveals our bias. We don't typically ask, why do bad things happen to bad people? Why don't we ask that? Because we know why, they deserve it, right? they get what's coming to them you reap what you sow but for most of us there is a horrible injustice when bad things happen to good people and of course we assume ourselves we're good people so why do bad things happen to us how do we explain it this is where it gets interesting Because we want to make sense of suffering in the world, because we want to make sense of our pain and others' pain, we come up with explanations, with reasons. Job's friends did this. When Job lost everything, his friends show up as they should, and at first they're doing great. They just sit with him. As I heard someone say the other day, they said about their friend, she just sat with me in the puddle. I thought that was a great way to say it. She just sat with me in the puddle. Job's friends began by just sitting with him in the puddle of misery and loss and pain. They didn't say anything. And then they opened their mouths and that's when things didn't go so well. And what did they say? They said, Job, there's got to be a reason for this. You must have done something really bad to make God so mad that he would punish you this way. What did you do, Job? You need to confess it. You need to get it out. You need to admit it. You did something because otherwise... All of this bad stuff wouldn't happen to you. Jesus' disciples. When Jesus and his disciples come across a man who's blind from birth, what do they say? They have to come up with a reason. They have to explain it. It's got to make sense of it. So they say, Jesus, who sinned, this guy or his parents that he was born this way, that he was born blind? John chapter 9, verse 2. We come up with explanations for suffering, reasons, for why things are as they are. We want to make sense of the world. So why do bad things happen to good people? Well, as we discussed last week from earlier in Romans chapter 8, creation is groaning, humanity is groaning. We live in this world that is fallen, that is infected by sin, that is darkened by evil, and ultimately that gives in to death. We live in a broken world. And so much of our suffering is the result of the brokenness, the fallenness, if you will, of this world. You say, but wait a minute, doesn't God insulate his own people? Doesn't he insulate his people from some of the pain and some of the suffering? Remember, our question isn't, why do bad things happen? Or even, why do bad things happen to bad people? It's, why do, do these Bad things, the suffering, why does it happen to people who don't deserve it? People who are people of faith, people who are trying to honor God and love God. Why? Why do those things happen? Paul provides some insight on this profound question, this profound problem, by giving us a new perspective. And he starts with how we approach God. So, our text, Romans chapter 8, verse 26 in the same way the spirit helps us in our weakness we do not know what we ought to pray for but the spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God that's an important phrase there in accordance with the will of God so Paul continues this this theme of groaning doesn't he Remember, he said creation is groaning, humanity is groaning, and now he says there's another form of groaning, but this form isn't bad. It's not not expressing frustration and pain because of the brokenness of the world. In fact, it's meeting that brokenness. It's meeting our groans with God's own groans. The Spirit, he says in verse 26, intercedes for us with wordless groans. Wordless groans. Groans. Have you ever closed your eyes to pray? Have you ever looked up to heaven to speak to God? Have you ever bowed your head to approach the throne room of heaven and just didn't have the words? You wanted to talk to God. There was so much you needed to say, you needed to ask, you needed to pour out, but you just, the words did not come. The thoughts were not coherent. They just did not come together. Maybe you're just overwhelmed by emotion. Maybe life is so difficult. Maybe your theology has been turned upside down and you don't even know if God exists or what he's doing or how he's working in this situation you don't know what to say to him maybe you're mad at God maybe you're upset at God maybe you're angry and and what you want to say you don't say because you don't think it's right to say or maybe logic just goes out the window because emotion takes over or maybe the problem is you know what you want, but you don't know if that's what God wants for you, and so you have this tension, and you don't know if you should verbalize that, then what does that say about you, and it reveals your true motivation? So you just don't know what to say. Isn't it a blessing that you don't have to have the right words? That prayer is not a formula, that it's not some key to unlock the gates of heaven. That if you say, I'm just right, God will hear you and he'll honor your prayer. Look at this notion of the Spirit interceding for us. How does he do that? Based on an intimate knowledge of your heart. Did you see in the text, he searches your heart. What a great way to say God knows you. He knows what's in your heart. Before you even try to express it with your words, he knows what's in there. He who searches your heart. So based on this intimate knowledge of your heart and this divine connection with his spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is translating your groans with his own divine dialect into these wordless groans that ascend into the throne room of heaven and God knows what's on your heart. And he knows in accordance to his own will How to respond to your prayer a prayer that's maybe even unspoken a prayer that's just offered up to him in a moment in an utterance in a thought in an emotion the holy spirit he says does this in verse 27 in accordance with the will of god as the holy spirit intercedes he is tuned to the frequency of God's will and that's so important because that means he's not tuned to the frequency of your will and my will we'll talk more about that in just a minute but that's so important and I think through prayer and through this process of prayer and this relationship and this connection of prayer the Holy Spirit and God reshape our jumbled up desires into something that conforms to the purposes of God to his will And so then prayer becomes more about what God is doing in us and through us and around us rather than what I think God should do. Prayer becomes not so much about God, here's my list of demands. Okay, they're not demands, they're requests. But really, in my heart, they're demands. Prayer becomes not so much about that and more about God, what are you doing? Not so much about, here's what I want you to do, but let me join in what you are doing. Prayer becomes more about listening and learning and being transformed. You see, that's the true nature of prayer. It's not changing what God does. It's changing what we do. It's not changing God's mind. It's changing our mind. Because as God, working through the Holy Spirit, intercedes and hears our prayers in accordance to His will, His will then unfolds around us and we need to be aware enough and faithful enough and have eyes open enough to see what God is doing in accordance with his will and then conform our wills to his will. Not my will, but your will be done. Seeking the will of God through prayer rather than our own wills, that becomes the foundation for Paul to address this bigger question of why bad things happen to good people and as he addresses this question he offers this rugged theology of God's sovereignty and human suffering so we continue in Romans chapter 8 and we know if you're an underliner underline those two words we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Have you heard this verse before, at least? Verse 28. It's a very familiar verse. It's been used to offer such encouragement and inspiration to so many people. But let's be honest, it's also been misused. And it's caused some pain and some confusion for many people. And so before we look at what it does say, I think it's important that we first of all look at what this verse does not say. There are a few things this verse does not say. First of all, this verse does not say that all things are good, does it? It doesn't say that. And if anyone sees you going through a difficult time or suffering and they say, oh, don't worry, this is a good thing be a little bit leery not all things are good I think we've already made that point but if not let me just say it again we live in a fallen world we live in the shadow of the fall where there is sin where there is sickness where there is death and so often we are victimized by the darkness and the death of this world and we are participants in it all things are not good there is evil there are bad things there is suffering and it's okay to acknowledge the pain in this world read the psalms of lament the psalmist cries out bears his heart to God God things aren't as they should be this verse does not say that all things are good nor does it say that God causes all things did God give you or your loved one cancer Did God cause you to get divorced? Did he keep you from having a child or keep you from getting healthy? Did he cause the accident or instigate the devastating tragedy? This verse does not say that God causes all things. It says that he works in all things. And as you are looking for explanations, as we said before, that's what we do. We try to make sense of our world. As you are looking for explanations, be careful about pointing your finger at God this verse does not say that God causes all things it also doesn't say that things just work together when we say things just work together we remove God from the equation well it's just a coincidence or the stars aligned or the universe did this that was karma we are people of faith not people of karma karma and when we remove God from the equation and say, "Well, things just worked out," we are dismissing the hand of God in our world. This verse also doesn't say that your purpose will be accomplished, and this is so important. I think this is where we get confused sometimes, and this is where our <coughs> excuse me where our theology gets us in trouble. This isn't about our purpose. God provided that parking space so much closer to the front door. God sold my house, or he found me a a spouse, or he worked things out so that I can retire early and and enjoy my life and relax. I, I don't know if God did or didn't do those things, but I know when we begin to assess the work of God according to our own needs and desires, we are on very thin ice. We need to step back and say, whose purpose, whose good am I really seeking? If the goal of God working in all things is to accomplish my good, my purpose, as I define them, as I describe them, then I've put my will above the will of God and my desires above his desires. So what does this verse say? Well, first of all, it says God is at work. That things aren't just random. That it's not the universe. That it's not karma. That God is at work. And God isn't necessarily at work cleaning up your messes, He is at work taking the pieces, the broken pieces, and putting them together, actively putting them together to form something new, something beautiful. See, that is redemption. God is at work in all things. Big and small, all things. Do you ever read the Bible and you think, man, I want some of those over-the-top moments in my life. Where is my Red Sea moment? Where is my fiery furnace moment? Where is my voice from heaven? Where are my unforeseen armies on the horizon? We want that big moment where it's undeniable that God is at work And maybe we're going day after day after day, missing the hand of God in the small things. Read the scriptures. God works not only in the big moments, but so often in the small things, in the mundane, in the ordinary. People and places and objects, situations and circumstances. Don't just long to feel and to hear the earthquake, the thunder, but tune your ears to that small, still voice that gentle whisper and look for the hand of God even in the small things the ordinary things the chance encounter the lunch conversation the daily schedule the song the message the podcast the book the decision God is at work in all things to accomplish what? Your will my will to accomplish his will. His will. What is the good God is working to accomplish? It's nothing other than his own good purpose and his will. Sometimes we think, well, God must not care. He must not be active because he didn't give me what I wanted. I didn't get the job. My life didn't turn out the way I planned it. I didn't. This relationship didn't work out. And we base our faith and our view of God as to how he delivers on my desires. If your faith hinges on your own health and happiness, your faith will certainly crumble under the inevitable weight of suffering. God wants to use the imperfect pieces of your life to create something beautiful, something worthy something that bears witness not to your greatness but to his greatness not to your purpose but to his purpose and so that begs the question well what is God's purpose what does God want look at verse 29 here it is and if you don't get anything else from this message take this with you that we are conformed to the image of his son That's God's purpose. So many people spend their lives looking for meaning and purpose and fulfillment. Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? What is my life about? I don't know if it's this job. I don't know if it's this situation, this place. Should we move? Should we do this? We spend our whole lives looking, what does God want from my life? Here it is right here. You know what God wants for your life? For you to be like Jesus. That's it. For you to become like his son. For you to be conformed into the image of his son. For you to be like Jesus. For your words to reflect the speech of Jesus. For your thoughts to reflect the mind of Jesus. For your actions and decisions and behaviors to reflect the life of Jesus. For your heart to beat like the heart of Jesus. For you to interact with others and treat others and approach others and see others the way Jesus did. For you to make the values of your life the ones that guided Jesus' life. That's what he wants for your life. That's his good purpose. So so if that's God's good purpose, then that then becomes our perspective. That becomes how we see suffering. Suffering how we interpret our surroundings and our situations. What if God's good purpose becomes the perspective that gets us through difficult times? In other words, what if you ask this question when interpreting the circumstances and situations of your life? Here's the question. How can God use this event, this conversation, this experience, this relationship, this setback, this victory, this hardship, this tragedy, how can God use it to shape me more into the image of his son? That's a much different question than, God, why did this happen? You see, the question becomes not, why did this happen? But God, what are you going to do through this to shape me more into the image of of Jesus. When it comes to the events of your life, especially the painful events, you may not know the reason, but you can know the result. You remember in our text, and I said, underlined it, what was the phrase, the two words? We know. We know. You will spend your entire life looking for reasons. And there's a great chance you aren't going to find them, at least no satisfactory reasons for your big questions. So why not focus on the result rather than the reasons? Why not shift your perspective, not to why did this happen? I have to make sense of this. It doesn't fit into my theology. Why don't you allow God to transform your theology and simply focus on how is God going to work to make me and others around me more like Jesus, to help us see Jesus, to become like Jesus. Look for the hand of God. See where He is picking up the pieces and putting them together. Notice how the great Redeemer is redeeming your pain and the pain of the world, that He's not dismissing your pain, that He's not trying to completely remove it. Suffering is painful. Acknowledge that, it's fine. But He redeems our pain and can bring about good through the pain. And when you go through that, when you go through that suffering or that difficulty or that trial or that setback, you may be able to begin to see the fingerprints of God, but it may take some time. It may take you living some time and then looking back and saying, wow, I I can see it now. I recently had a conversation with a friend and he was telling me about something that happened Several years ago, he was targeted and he was, he was really mistreated and treated unfairly because he was a person of faith, he was trying to live with integrity, and in a moment, in a moment, he lost his job, he lost his reputation, he virtually lost everything. He did nothing wrong, he was trying to do the right thing, and he was targeted by those who didn't like what he stood for. And as he shared that story with me, he said, you know, when I was going through it, it was terrible. He says, now it's been several years and I can look back and I don't want to do it again. And I'm not glad I went through it. But he said, I can see God working even in those difficult situations. I can see God changing my heart and my mind and my faith. You see, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to enjoy suffering. You say, Yeah, I want to do that again. That was so much fun. Let's, let's Let's run that back again. No. The good God works out doesn't minimize, it doesn't justify the pain of loss and suffering. It doesn't make it go away, and it doesn't make it okay. We should be outraged at evil in this world, and we should grieve when that evil brings loss to us. But remember, God does not and will not let evil win in this life and certainly in the next life god will redeem your pain he will bring justice and mercy and he will accomplish his good will i think one of the best examples of this teaching comes straight from scripture in the story of joseph if you've been around the bible very long at all you know joseph's story you know the coat of many colors He was mistreated by his brothers. He went through so much. He lost his home. He lost his family. He was thrown into prison. He went through all of this adversity, all of these difficult times. And as he looked back over those years and those experiences, he's addressing his brothers who basically put him there, put him in that spot. And he could have been bitter. Many of us would be. He could have been angry. Some of us would have been. He could have been faithless, lost his faith. God, if this is... What you have planned for me, I don't want any part of your plan. But if you know the story of Joseph, you know what he said. You know how he looked at the suffering in his life, the perspective he had. When it came to his explanatory style, what he attributed all of it to, this is what he said in Genesis 50 verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done the saving of many lives that is perspective that is faith evil comes at us and it wants to harm us and it comes in many different forms and it's real and we should acknowledge it and we should grieve loss is incredibly painful but through faith knowing that God is at work in all things to accomplish his good purpose, we can trust that he is picking up the pieces and he is putting something together that is beautiful, that is honorable, that is something that bears witness to his presence, to his power, to his purpose, even in this world. Several years ago, I had a conversation on the phone with a a lady who was just looking for answers. She was looking for hope. She was so distraught. She told me her story, and her story is heartbreaking. She said when she was in her mid-40s, she decided to donate one of her kidneys to a complete stranger. It was a young man in his 30s. He had been on dialysis for quite some time, and he needed help, and she felt led by God through prayer, through circumstances that kind of unfolded, and it just sort of worked out. She felt led by God to give this young man one of her kidneys, and so she did. The surgeries went well. He was doing great. Then, all of a sudden, with this medication complication, his body began to reject that new kidney, and ultimately, it did not work. His body rejected it, and it threw her for a loop. You see, that had been her testimony, that had been her story. She would tell people about God because God led me to do this, to give this important part of myself, to give a chance at life to this other person, this complete stranger. And now, what happened to her testimony? What happened to her story? She said, if God didn't really do that, if he didn't lead me to do that, if he's not behind that, then how can I trust him to do anything he said he would do? What do you say to someone like that? I mean, that's real. That's raw. I mean, you know, that's not necessarily the time to say, well, have you read Romans 8.28? In all things, God will work for the good. Just hang on, it's, it's okay, it's gonna be good. That's our temptation sometimes, isn't it? We don't know what to say. So I thought and I prayed in that moment, and my thoughts immediately went to the cross. And by the way, if you ever don't know what to say... <laughs> I think God leads us to the cross a number of times in a number of ways for a number of reasons. You can't go wrong talking about the cross. That's where God took me. That's where my heart went. And I said, You know, I I cannot imagine what it feels like. I cannot imagine what you're going through. I cannot imagine what it feels like to give a part of yourself being led by God to do that to someone that you don't even know, to give them life. The gift of life, literally the gift of life, and then to have it rejected. I said, I can't imagine what that's like. I said, but I know this. God can't imagine that. God understands that pain. God knows exactly what you're feeling because he gave a valuable part of himself. He gave his one and only son. He sacrificed as a gift something incredibly important to him to give strangers in some sense to give people who don't know him a chance at life and you know what many people rejected it many people still reject it so God knows how you feel and God hurts with you God hurts with you and he cares about you and he will redeem your pain you see, God doesn't want to cause you pain. He's not out to get you. God wants to redeem your pain. When it's all said and done, that's where we go, to the cross, because there is no stronger proof, no stronger witness to the redemptive power of God. Something so horrible, something so tragic, so violent, somehow God was able through his divine providence to bring good out of something so bad to bring good according to his will that he predestined that he knew he would set in motion that he would bring this good out of something so tragic so bad such loss that's what God does God is the great redeemer the one who redeems our pain. The one who redeems the suffering. The one who will ultimately redeem this creation. So let God redeem your pain. Let him redeem your life. Let him bring good out of the bad. Because that's what God does. If you're ready to go to the cross today to surrender your life and take up your cross and follow him, stop waiting. Give your life to Christ. Become a child of God. Be baptized into Christ today. If we can encourage you and support you, we want to do that. Life is difficult. There is suffering. There is pain. Let us walk with you. Let us pray for you. In just a moment, as we stand up, a couple of our shepherds and their wives will be in a parlor. It's a room on this hallway behind me. They would love to encourage you. If you just want to walk there and meet them there, they'll pray for you and just kind of have a private moment with you they they would be honored to do that we as a church family will lift you up in prayer too so you can either come down to the front or you can go to the parlor and we want to encourage you if there's something we can do today we invite you to come as we stand and sing let's stand